0: oh my goodness we don't have to build the whole thing we just run some experiments to determine whether even we're answering the right question he's like duh
1: (laughs) welcome to the etch podcast Giving you an inside look at the strategy, design, leadership, and innovation from experts across different industries who are actually doing it. I'm Ross Chapman from Etch, and our guest this episode is Elvin Turner. Elvin is an award winning innovation expert and associate professor of innovation, entrepreneurship, and marketing for MBA and executive education programs. His new book, Be Less Zombie. How Great Organizations Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People came out earlier this year, and it distills 10 years of field research amongst some of the world's leading innovators in a pragmatic, actionable toolkit. Elvin, thanks for coming on the Edge podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here on a chilly Monday morning.
1: Absolutely. It's nearing the end of 2020. What have been your highlights this year?
0: Well, I guess the book coming out inevitably was going to be one. That was a a labour of love. And to to see that out and getting the feedback that it's getting has been gratifying and and great to see that it's been helpful to people. All kinds of different highs and and lows, I suppose. Um, Lots of good family highs with kids going transitioning into different stages of life, which has been fun. I, I have to say, though, I've just started a project, which is, I'm already calling it a career highlight, even though I'm only a month into a six-month assignment. Oh my goodness, it's it's ticking all the boxes for me on working with an organisation that is highly purpose-led, really trying to change the world, and they want to build out innovation infrastructure, and they asked me to help, so what's not to like? So. Yes, lots of good stuff this year. Lots to be
1: thankful for. Incredible. And I'm also joined by Seth Campbell, who's our head of innovation at Etch. Welcome, Seth. Hi there. And what have your highlights been this year so far?
2: God, it's it's been a bit of a year, hasn't it? Turbulent um, doesn't even get 1% there, I think. You know, we're here to talk about innovation. I think that this kind of shock that has uh, that has cut across the world and and everyone's personal lives and also business lives as well. I guess just really put into focus how dealing with change is it, it was always important, but it's just really brought it into the foreground. and I think um, all of the conversations that we've been having at work and, and personally, been illuminating if you can get a silver lining out of something so difficult. So a lot of um, constructive conversations about change, I think, has been has been a sort of a theme over the year. You know, partly just from this kind of forced experiment we've all been in. So yeah, that's that's definitely been a highlight. And and I think seeing a little bit to what Elvin was saying that the the traction that some of the um, the concepts that have been hanging around in innovation, you know, for for, for decades. In, in some cases, uh, having, having some um, clients that are really looking for new ways to innovate, new ways to experiment and be bold in, in, a, in a challenging business environment has been, has been uh, definitely a highlight. Looking into the light of the future and, and what the next decade is going to bring um, as a result of some of these changes is exciting.
1: I, I think so too. That That's fantastic. Thank you, Seth. So Elvin, the the book Be Less Zombie, it's been described as an excellent and practical guide for any leader trying to turn on high levels of innovation in their organisation. What led you to put it together? What led you to write this book?
0: Well, I, I never really intended to write a book and it was born out of necessity, really, as, you know, innovation often is. I found myself going into lots of assignments inside organizations of all, all different kinds and we'd do some work it might be doing some design sprints it might be doing some training it might be doing some leadership development it could be all, all kinds of different types of of assignment as i was leaving i always felt that i wanted to leave something behind that would be like a, a helpful field manual for people who could have a point of reference to go back because you know the best will in the world, I'm a consultant, I go in for a limited amount of time. My aim is always to try and build capability so that people can do more better on their own. But you always know that there's a limit to what you can do, there are going to be bumps in the road ahead where you're not able to help. So what can I leave behind? And even though there are stacks and stacks of great innovation books out there, I never felt there was one that was quite what I wanted. So I thought, well, why don't I write it then? So it ended up being a combination of I guess, my experience, which is in innovation, change management and and leadership and communication, actually. And I found that a blend of those things was the thing that people were really needing to help them get through the innovation journey. So it was really born out of that, um, a desire to want to be able to keep helping beyond the assignment. So, yeah, that's where it came from.
2: So interesting. And and your point about kind of communication in there and really speaks to the, the cultural part and what you're kind of leaving behind and, and how an organization could go on maturing. So yeah, I, I love the book, Trying to Resist the Temptation to Totally Geek Out. You, you do caveat um, that the book, isn't for innovation geeks and i thought that was really interesting and, and and we found that you know lots of innovation attempts and even the word itself is it can be a bit caustic and, and lots of attempts and organizations have fallen short in terms of expectations and and there can be a kind of if not done the right way or with the right traction there can be a kind of lack of respect for the initiative of an innovation team uh, that's something we, we find in engagements uh, and i just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that you know there are there are some kind of negative associations sometimes around innovation you know what do you think are some of the ways to to kind of address that and kind of tackle
0: them head on and and help well I think often that the negative associations have come from negative experiences where someone with good intentions has tried to move the needle on innovation inside the organization and I guess the motivations for that can be a starting point on whether that's going to succeed or not if it's a personal agenda to get the spotlight does not always get a great place to start, but sometimes it's that more often than not though, it's a genuine need to see more bigger ideas in the organization that can help them help the organization to buy, buy more time, dig deeper moats of competitive advantage, you know, or or just improve effectiveness and efficiency. And I I think very often what tends to happen is there's a very, I, I call it dating innovation. There's dating innovation, and then there's there's kind of settling down and and getting serious with innovation. And when we fall into the dating camp, we're just running campaigns, we're just trying to do things at a very tactical level. We think that we can run some kind of innovation competition to come up with ideas, and then they will magically turn into action. And of course, anyone who's worked in innovation will know that it's the execution that's the really hard bit. The fun bit, the, the sizzle up front and coming up with the ideas, so long as they're born out of good insights, is is usually not so difficult it's turning them on and that's that tends to be where it breaks down because we're trying to drop big still ill-formed ideas we're still trying to work out the problem space that they they operate in We're trying to understand the assumptions that would cause them to be true and we drop them into a very fast-moving highly efficient honed status quo environment and of course they're dead on arrival there's, it's very hard for them to survive because there's no team, there's no budget, no one's got time, no one's prepared to line manage them. And so they, they die a quick death. And, and often, you know, you can see the, the carnage of former innovation programs when I'm, when I'm invited in. And it's it, again, it was the right motivation, but there needs to be a, a little bit more thought into what does it take to create an environment where, where a bigger, more uncertain idea can really show up. And it's about calibrating the environment, which I guess we'll go on to talk, or talk to in a moment. But I, I think that's the starting point is what's the outcome we're looking for and working back from what's the context that that idea is going to need in order to survive? You know, incremental ideas for today can work in status quo. that's no problem. But the further we wander from today, the more we need to be more deliberate about what metrics, what processes, what rewards, what people, what timeframes, all of the other things that um, are required that don't match
1: with today that's great i i welcome the death of the vanity hackathon (laughs) (laughs) it it needs it needs to go yeah that that's 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 a a more practical way to approach it i'd Mm. say
2: and i i guess something that can happen is you know there there is a motivation and there's lots of new ideas you know um the, the the very front end of the kind of funnel or cycle um you know, uh, has happened and there's a lot of excitement and sometimes that can trigger that kind of knee jerk. Let's go and build it. You know, let's, 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 um, let, you know, we, we've, um, we've done what we need to do. Um, and, and sort of almost ironically, uh, sometimes you need to slow down in those phases in between and there's actually you know i think to what you're alluding to there's a kind of infrastructure of innovation almost that need that that needs to go alongside to to really encourage um, sustainability. But that can be really challenging because people, you know, when you're sitting there as a as a as someone that's supposed to help with innovation, you're saying, well, maybe we should go slightly less fast. You know, how do you kind of um, get around that?
0: I think it can be helpful to point to organisations that do this well. And particularly if the task at hand is to find more disruptive ideas, more transformational ideas, we have to deal in reality. And I, that for me is Dealing in the reality that most of these big ideas will end up failing and point to organizations like Amazon and Google who have have industrialized the approach to discovering more disruptive ideas. And they themselves, Google, Google Labs, you know, Google X particularly is very vocal about the fact that 99 percent of their ideas end up in the bin. And that's not that they were wasted. Um, but they will learn things from them inevitably, but it's that 1%. And and di- just getting to into that mindset that if we want to go there to, to find bigger ideas that can have a bigger impact on our future and our stakeholders and everything else, we have to accept the fact that failure is coming. Therefore, let's become really great at failing fast, you know, all of the cliches around it, but let's actually do it. And it, so for me, there's a mindset shift for leaders to say, okay, you have to let go of certainty and control and allow the process the um the natural course of exploration and that's exploring whether this idea even makes sense not not we're not going to run a few tests now to prove that we should do this we're running to discover whether we should do it and in that process we may find that many of the ideas are wrong so you know the idea of lean startup and running you know small fast experiments design sprints all of those things are great techniques but i find they're all parts of helping a leader go through the reality check if you like taking the I can never remember whether it's the red or the blue pill in Matrix, but if we're going to go here, we need to be prepared for the fact that there will be failure. But let's now. This is a. If you don't mind me quickly just jumping up on my soapbox, this is one of the issues that I have around the word failure because it's very zero sum. I would much rather, I, I and I'm sure you'd probably be the same. I I would much rather recommend organisations talk about learning. We're trying to learn whether this idea makes sense. Now then when you run an experiment, whatever happens, you've succeeded because you've learned either it was the right thing, it's somewhere in the middle, or it's the wrong thing. So everything is success, not this polarizing, um, well, it didn't work, you failed. Suddenly, everybody wants to go back into their shell. And and then, you know, next time around, when someone's asked to run an experiment, how many people are putting up their hands? So the, the starting point for me is, We need to get real about a mindset shift that if we're going to go for bigger ideas, we can find them, but we've got to generate tons more ideas because it's all about volume and you'll find the gems, you know, amongst the rough. Um, But many of those ideas will fail. There is no way around it until we get, you know, an incredible AI maybe that can (laughs) predict the future or uh, we start to walk in more prophetic powers. But I think that's the starting point for me is because it, everything starts with leadership because they define the values, what gets rewarded and everything else.
2: It's really, really interesting. And it makes me think about, um, you know, it, it seems like humans have a kind of, we like things to be binary sometimes. We like to have a, you know, start or stop, uh, build or, you know, um, or BAU or brand new, um, but actually reframing everything as a kind of learning journey um can actually change your attitude to change itself i suppose um and and that's and that's um yeah that's a hard hard step for that i guess
0: well i i think one of the added things is we the speed that we run at and the certainty that we expect in the status quo tends to get transferred into um the exploration mode so we're what we know Come on, show me the ideas, show me the money, effectively. Why are we hanging around? Come on, this, this is obviously going to work, or that obviously isn't going to work. We're, we're in such a rush. I mean, in the book, we talk about um, a desire for cordon-blur ideas in microwave timescales. And it's just not dealing in reality. So <laughs> we, we have to be real about this. Creativity takes time. and And of course, you have to balance that with commercial realities, that you need to get things to market. And you can do things at pace. But we need to be real about, again, for me, the key word is calibration. If you're looking for bigger, bolder, more uncertain ideas, you have to give them space, not only to explore the assumptions and the degree to which they're right or or less right, but also, I mean, you look at Pixar, you look at the most creative organisations on the planet, they allow time for incubation to happen, for ideas to grow, to mature, to go in different directions. So we're not going with the first idea that we come with and trying to validate that we're actually trying to spend time coming up with something truly original that actually is much more difficult to copy by the competition than something that we can just spin out in 30 days so yeah there's a a few dynamics in there
1: and there's a, a thirst for it now the companies that we're talking to they they say and every time we want to be different and so how do you be different you you learn and you experiment you fail and, and you innovate. It seems to be the, the only thing that you can't buy off the shelf. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: you know, if you look at, you look at the, the, the names that always get, get uh, cited in as great innovators, you know, Amazons and Airbnbs. I, I know you've had some of these guys on your show. That they, as a strategic source of competitive advantage now, they invest in culture. Because they know that that's so hard to copy. You can buy all of the how-to books and the case studies of Netflix and 3M and Toyota, and all, all of those books. They show you so much, they often don't really show you what's going on that really drives the culture. And that, you know, that's the secret sauce. that's so hard to copy. It's, it's IP, effectively. It
2: makes me think, actually. You, you have this term in the book um, called the, the innovation particle um which uh i love um would you mind just kind of giving a bit of an overview of that i guess the other thing that's um that relates to it was this idea some of the imagery is great of um businesses having one eye bigger than the other got this idea of sort of
0: monster in the business
2: um but yeah the the innovation particle would be great to um to just hit get a bit of an overview of that and what you mean by it
0: yeah well i was listening to your your uh, interview with greg larkin recently and i know that he he talks a lot about don't go for ideas, go for outcomes, start with outcomes. And and that's really what I'm talking about here. It's based around the jobs to be done methodology. And it's trying not to get carried away with ideas, but to look at any context in which your products or services get used and to try and understand what is the deep underlying progress that a customer is trying to make in that context and and break it down and really, really get very specific about what's happening in that process what progress underlies the process and which progress matters most where are the bit the biggest constraints in that progress so uh, i think in, in the um, in the book we give the example of a kid trying to learn how to skateboard and you know a skateboard manufacturer is selling skateboards well at one level they are they're selling a piece of wood or some clever plastic and some wheels but in the teenager's mind he's thinking ahead to the skate park where there's this cute girl that he wants to date. And the only way he's gonna get there is if he can buy credibility by learning how to do a few tricks, earn the rights to wear the right clothes, hang out in the skate park and get close to her. Otherwise he's got no chance. So he's, he's not necessarily thinking about, I want to buy a skateboard. The progress he's trying to make is speed to first date. And the skateboard is a, a vehicle to help him get there faster. So from a skateboard manufacturer's point of view, sure, you still got to make skateboards. But the thing that might set you apart from others, other manufacturers, is your ability to deeply understand what's going on in that kid's context. And of course, this is one of many contexts. But how can I help that kid learn three cool tricks in two weeks instead of two months so that he can get closer to that girl faster? You know, And then you can spin out you know, into adjacencies that you can experiment with, which is actually, if 57% of our first time customers are all about identity and image and fitting in, what else can we develop for them that can help them make that progress that might have nothing to do with skateboards, but could be interesting other avenues to explore. So it's trying to understand what progress are our customers are trying to, you know, what the innovation particle is, what's the progress, and then how can we help them make 10%, you know, 10 times, you know, the, the progress that they're making at the moment. And it's that trajectory you're trying to follow. The more we follow incremental ideas based on obvious extrapolations from where we are today, the more vulnerable we, we, vulnerable we become to industry shifts. And if you look in the music industry over time, you know, over 100 years, we've gone from wax cylinders to vinyl, to tape, to CDs, to downloads. The, the underlying progress for most music consumers is I want access and I want to be able to manage my music anytime, any place. That hasn't changed for a hundred years. What has changed is the, is the technology and fundamental shifts. So as an organization, it's really useful to focus your innovation on what isn't changing or what's really changing much slower, which is underlying progress. It's just the means by which we, we try and help customers achieve that stuff better um that 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 really is is the difference one one example that I really like at the moment is the way that Netflix thinks, and they don't think about how can we well they probably are thinking about how can we stream videos better, but when they started out their their starting point was how can we help consumers find great movies there's no technology mentioned there. Often, in our mission statements and things, we, we sort of implicitly we're talking about the technology that we believe will get us there. Netflix jumped from DVD to streaming with in some respects without you know in, in, in a heartbeat because actually they realized that we can help our consumers find movies better if we move to an online model. And of course, the world's going that way. There are other motivations as well. But I would be really surprised if the leadership team aren't already thinking about, how can we help them do it even better? And let's just let's just pretend streaming isn't an issue anymore. What when streaming dies, what will we replace it with? And that's a much healthier way to be running experiments through that lens so that our innovation is always aligned to strategy and future. That's really interesting to
2: think about. What would Netflix replatform to next? And are are they already working on it?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I'm sure you know you've got many years left of streaming until to, 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 we really rinse that one for all it's worth. But the way they think, I wouldn't be surprised if th- that there will be someone somewhere inside Netflix playing with the future, looking you know trying to tune into these weak signals from the future, mashing together scenarios, playing around with new tech, um, and seeing how movies can show up. I'm, and I wouldn't be surprised if it involves us being in them more.
2: Love it. Yeah, and I guess um, some of their kind of, they've done a bit of programmatic testing, haven't they? The sort of choose your own adventure. Um, And and that's interesting. Um, There's that kind of point uh, I've I've seen um, organizations struggle with about to what extent do you kind of wear your experimentation on your sleeve um, and, you know, um, actually release something perhaps to the public you know it can be a bit scary for organizations sometimes with you know a brand reputation or um you know ip or something they're testing that might be brilliant but they don't want to kind of let it loose yet um you know how do you um how how do you think um businesses should go around that you know is it is it okay to get something away very early on with you know uh, you know, a landing page or a piece of paid media to test a quick proposition. Um, and how do you kind of address the concerns that the internal team might have about you know confidentiality and and, and brand image and things like that?
0: Yeah, I, I think some of this it's it's wrapped up in old ways of thinking that that's that cause us to um, make assumptions about what might play out. So I've got a few different thoughts on this. I think. The first one is you don't have to build it all yourself anyway you, you know one one strategy from for many companies is acquisition we'll wait for a startup to get a certain level of maturity and then we'll just buy them we're not going to we're not going to try and build it ourselves and that, that's a legitimate approach it's, you know cisco were are the masters of that um i think though when, when you're working inside an organization and you're thinking particularly brand and marketing people thinking about what might this do to our brand I think the world has moved on so much in the last 10 years that people are more used to scrappier um, first iterations of things. I mean, and and I think that's user-generated content has helped with that. You know, people are quite happy to sit and watch quite crappily produced YouTube and it gets crazy views. TikTok's just accelerating all of that. So our, our expectations of of quality, I, th- I think are flexible. Um, but I also think that, I mean, he, again, you look at the companies that do this well, Google are doing this all the time. I remember they recently put something out on Gmail. Do you want to be part of a, a beta group that, that, uh, that, that we're testing something on, you know, it's going to have some glitches so you don't care if it doesn't work hundred percent. So I think some of it is the framing with the customers. What's the expectation that you're setting with this thing so that, um, we're all on the same page, it's going to be a bit bumpy, but we're here to learn. And the people who are interested in signing up to that kind of stuff are the geeks anyway, they they, they want to see what's going on, they'll give you all the feedback you want, they'll tell you it warts and all, which is what you want right up front, and to help you flush out some of the assumptions. So I think if it's positioned in the right way, and and now, you know, you can go and find, I always say to organisations that are nervous about this, um, there is always a a percentage of your customer base that's desperate to play they're bored out of their minds and they want to play with new stuff or they're just right at the front of the innovation curve and they want companies to come to them and say help me help me develop this together well go and find them you can find them it's just effort find them and create a small community where you can launch stuff to them first you know behind a firewall or whatever else and you know, ga- gaming companies have been doing this for years. You have people coming in and testing games. Movies do it with pre-screening. You can find a community to do this safely. Um, and as you learn whether it's something that's actually going to make sense at scale, then then you can put something out there that's a little bit shinier. But I think there's a lot of these days unnecessarily unnecessary nervousness around it because we think it's all or nothing. It's this binary thing again. We're going to put it out on our homepage and people are going to download it and it's going to break and oh my goodness, you know, we're going to be in the newspapers the next day because our server crashed as well. You could do it that way if you wanted to, <laughs> but why would you? Again, it's MVP. What's the smallest possible experiment we could run with who to learn what so that we can be informed about what we should do next? That's great. Thank you. Really,
2: really practical. And, um, you know, you think about, I guess we, we most often hear about the sort of platform-type businesses um, that are enabled to do this kind of thing. You know, I'm thinking about, like, Google Glass didn't really hurt Google in a significant mm. way in, in most people's minds. It's still used. Um, so, you know, and I think that might be another trend as well, how, how to kind of reposition an organization as a platform so that you can, you know... Sort of um, convincingly delivered completely new, more diverse types of um, you know business model propositions um, that might you know n- not immediately seem like a natural evolution, but are actually building out an ecosystem of different different options, which kind of leads me to think about you know renewing business models and the sort of rate of renewal um, that that businesses you know, should go through, if we kind of assume that some kind of, you know, we look at the way that the, um, you know, the, the lifespan of a business is diminishing, um, you know, so much, I think it's a kind of well known fact. Um, uh, and therefore, there's a need for kind of ongoing transformation. Um, you talk about the idea. Um, so, you know, if a business has a corporate strategy, um, if, if they have one, if it exists, um, uh, then, you know, there will normally be a gap, um between what they have now in their kind of status quo, um, what would it take to uh, realize those goals or aspirations or moonshots? Um, And you talk about this this concept of the kind of economy of needs um, underpinning that, which I thought was a great um, term. Um, And I guess, you know, speaks to having a portfolio mix of different types of innovation, things that are more incremental versus more kind of transformational um, what do you think are the kind of important factors in getting the right portfolio mix and resources to address those needs? It's kind of a big question, but yeah. um, on the kind of strategy of innovation level.
0: Yeah, I, I think the starting point, uh, we sort of alluded to this earlier, is working back from the future. Who do we need to become and why? What 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 do we need to look like? How do we need to show up in the future? And then what's that going to take if we carry on doing what we're doing today and we're getting incremental growth is that enough so for me it's it's a it's a dual exercise of thinking forward and thinking backwards from the future and seeing seeing where you land and I, I often don't see enough very high quality um, thinking from the future so looking at trends what's coming how might they mash up and create all kinds of plausible alternative realities for us? That are different to our incremental expansion into the future because it's unlike you know the speed and, and scope of change that we have these days it, it's unlikely to show up the way that you're anticipating it will so it's getting real about not necessarily being able to predict the future but present options that you can then start to test which ones are showing up most quickly we've got three or four scenarios there what would need to be true for those to show up what 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 signals would we see in the market that things are moving in that direction and so that we can start to run some tests now or develop capabilities now or look for organizations that we might want to partner with or buy so that when that um, version of reality starts to show up we're ready so for me it's starting there and then it's working back to okay, so if we're going to place some bets in that direction, what is the spread that we would want? And in the book, we talk about, um, and this isn't my research, this is fairly well established, this starting point of a 70-20-10 split. 70% of your innovation is just focusing on the core, keeping the engine running, and you have to do that. 10% at the other end is playing with the future. It's the experimental stuff, most of which will fail. And in the middle, you've got this 20 where you've got Ideas that are coming down from the crazy zone, the, the labs that are showing some promise, and you want to take them to the next level, and there are ideas that you're looking at your core and thinking, well, this works in our current customer base. What adjacent customer bases could we move into where we don't currently work? But actually, the stretch isn't very far. It's 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 almost a matter of tweaking the business model or um, tweaking the, the you know the go to market model or something like that. So that allows you to think about what is a smart wise i guess balance of what we need And every industry is going to have a different balance if you're working in very fast changing industry like tech for example 70 20 10 probably won't cut it you're going to need more like a i don't know I'm going to have to do the math off the top of my head now but <laughs> maybe it's a a 40 30 30 or something like that because things are moving faster and and i think so the two 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 things one is Thinking about what the future could really look like rather than assuming we're stra- extrapolating forward because it won't show up like that. It's very unlikely. And therefore, what's the product that we're going to need? But also, as Alex Ostervalder talks about regularly in, in, in the books that he writes, you know, the real advantage often is in the business model um, that you take to market and being deliberate about business model innovation rather than just thinking about product or marketing. I think is a, can be a game changer, and it's not something that we're necessarily deliberate about enough. So, making that choice to think about well, what does innovation mean here? I always say I think it should be three things: it's it's looking at product, it's looking at business model, um, and it's and it's looking at how we show up as an organisation. Our, our innovation should always be looking at those three things, so that we're continually both incrementalizing ourselves forward but we're you know but we're calibrating ourselves into the market but we're also thinking about what could be showing up in five years time and starting to lay foundations for a transition now rather than every 18 months doing a knee-jerk transformation that's super painful
2: so let's say um a business has sort of started They've worked out um, that, you know, designing some small lean experiments are, are useful. They've got the kind of ideation piece running, you know, um, that they, they can get to some, some concepts. Um, ideally, they have a, a, an idea or a sketch of a business model underlying that. Um, uh, they have, let's say they have, um, you know, uh, some level of investment in that and they're able to run some kind of pilots and, um, how do they get from there? Uh, you reference um, crossing the chasm by uh, Jeffrey Moore. Um, how do they get from there, like out into, out into the mainstream? Because um, that that kind of middle territory, I think we've definitely seen a few innovation um, processes. Kind of, you know, ideas essentially get to a level of validation, and then it either becomes too risky, or there isn't an investment process behind it, and they kind of fall off a cliff. Um, and, and, and then, you know, that has a knock on effect on the whole perception of the program.
0: I guess depending on where you are in, in your in your innovation maturity, it's no bad thing to be thinking about how do we innovate our innovation? And that is often the Well, there are several tricky phases through the innovation journey, I think it's wobbly upfront, But once once you get a new idea, as you say, getting some traction. Often, as you say, there is this cliff where there is nervous. Well, this is what I experience anyway. I see a nervousness at an executive level to really pull the trigger on investment that's going to make it scale. Do we really know enough yet? Maybe we could run another test. Let's just put that on hold for six months because we've got this fire that's just landed on our desk. And it's tough. I'm not going to pretend it's it's easy to make these decisions. But uh, um, I guess the, the um, organizations that I see that do it well. They've thought through handovers really effectively at different stages of the process. And whilst they are developed, so you've usually got a team to some extent that's in the business, but separate from the business that's out there playing with the new ideas. Even at that early stage, when we're starting to get signals that something is probably going to work, you start to bring in people from the core business and say, this could be coming. What would need to be true for this to work at different stages of the business? And we're real about, okay, well, in the next 12 months, we've got this stuff happening. Um, we're we're going to need to set aside some resource here. We're going to need to know this. We're going to have to start talking to channel partners. Let's work back again from the future to understand what would need to be true for this thing to, to fly through the organization. Because that's it's usually that the hand... In the book, we talk about driving with your handbrake on. It's usually a lack of good process or cultural nervousness that is causing the roadblocks that when you get to decision point the the, the executives often genuinely don't know how to make the right decision so designing a process where we all know what needs to be true to to um, act on a uh, you know a scale decision is a starting point i think also though that you know the whole crossing the chasm the the premise behind that is so anyone who hasn't read the book the idea is that you've got this curve of growth and it can your idea can suddenly start to spike in growth with early adopters and innovators but when you go to the mass market suddenly the growth disappears because the thing that the innovators wanted isn't the thing that the mass mass market wanted and you can believe your own experiments are going to validate your your growth when actually it's almost like two different um, markets you're working with so how do you know what the mass market wants well you keep experimenting and you don't fall into the assumption that just because we've made it with the innovators we're going to make it with the mass market so you start running experiments with them earlier on as well and one of the things that I have seen work well is um, inviting in Customers who are just again, we talked earlier about find find the customers who want the bleeding edge. Help them help you learn. But as soon as you can, I would say also bring in some of your more open but conservative customers to say, we think the future might start to look like this. Tell us how this might show up for you. Or what nervousness would you have about this? What you know, what might a journey be to this sort of idea? and you're helping them give you the data that would give you the confidence to make a decision around scaling rather than feeling like, right, let's do this, this this bet where we're going to try and jump off the cliff and over over into growth. Well, no, let's include them in our journey to understanding what would need to be true for growth to show up. And you know, sometimes products can't cross the chasm because there isn't a mass market for them. Better to find that out now and not back it, then back something that then creates another innovation experience that no one wants to go near again. Amazing. Uh,
2: it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, culture, um, because there is, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, innovation theatre kind of gets banded around as another kind of negative connotation. But I would say, you know, there is an educational aspect sometimes of people just trying out this new toolkit of you know things that we're doing, um how to kind of you know play constructively in an organization um uh so i'd just like to get your thoughts on kind of where corporates should start um and at what point do they need what kind of guardrails do they need um you know and the kind of the the getting the balance right between getting people educated and feeling comfortable. Um, and then really trying to realise some value, because um, that's quite a, a tough one I've found.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, for me, there are two. I'm sure there are more than two, but there are two that I talk about in the book. Starting points. In an ideal world, you want to start strategically. You want the board on board. You want them to be understanding what this is going to take, so that we can move into a new, um, a new way of delivering innovation at, at scale and you know and effectively that isn't always a luxury that you have depending on who is trying to initiate more innovation inside the organization. Quite often it's someone buried down in the middle of the organization and say, come on, we need this. We're going to die. Otherwise, you know, and you've got people who are passionate about the business or the organization, but they don't really have a platform to do it. And so if, if, so that, you know, ideal world it's starting at senior level and they're, they're backing the journey that I would say in my experience, that's, not always where it begins. So what I always advocate is find someone somewhere, find the most senior person you can who has a problem that they really need to solve soon and they have some level of motivation to want to sponsor innovation. And then just start running experiments. I mean, I have to say, I mean, The Lean Startup, when I read that book, it changed so much for me as I think it has for so many people. The the mindset shift to oh my goodness, we don't have to build the whole thing. We just run some experiments to determine whether even we're answering the right question. He's like, duh. <laughs> but still, you know, 10 years later, I can stand in front of a room just running some leadership training and hold up that book, which I think is one of the most important business books written in the last 50 years, probably. I don't think I'm exaggerating in that because of the impact that I see that it has. You hold it up and you say, who's ever heard of this book? You might get two out of 30. Okay, who's read the book? And then you get some more awkward sort of shuffling well i you know i read the first chapter but i was just busy that inch of paper i i, I couldn't justify the get through. well most people have still not heard of experimentation now you might find it in it you might find it in product development but actually in the mainstream organization most people it's a brand new idea still and i found that when you take that idea of running small, fast experiments that gives you permission and lowers the stakes. That's what it's all about for me. It lowers the stakes for taking that first step towards an idea that otherwise we won't go anywhere near. It massively lowers the fear, it lowers the stakes, it lowers the risks, and suddenly everybody's happier to step into it more. So I I did some work with Pernod Ricard, the, the global drinks company a few years ago. And um, I was doing the training with the board and there's a, uh, the guy at the time who was the marketing director. I genuinely thought he was asleep at the back of the room and I was quite cross with him actually. I nearly, I, nearly, I wanted to embarrass him and wake him up and, but I, it turned out later. A book at him. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, I, I was explaining Lean Startup and process behind it. And suddenly he, he sort of snapped to life and said, oh, so what you're saying is instead of spending 50k building something we should spend 50 quid learning something i thought oh i like that that's so i've stolen that completely i use it all the time but it's such a neat way of thinking about the first step as a tiny experiment no one gets fired all we're doing is learning we're we're we're, so that anyway to, to complete the cycle on that story i mean their performance went through the roof it wasn't just starting to do more innovation they had other things going on in the business but what the ceo ended up saying was don't bring me ideas ideas are ten a penny bring me experiments bring me an experiment where you've run one or two three cycles you've got some data you've got some evidence and come to me with a recommendation not with a hunch or a, a pet idea and suddenly that that changed everything in their ability to make high quality decisions around what to back and you know how to how to invest in their own portfolio so If you can do nothing else, I would say train your team in how to run experiments, learn how to do that well, and start to show up around the organization with some options for people. Because this is really what it's about. It's creating optionality for people at low risk. When I I did this on a program with Sony Music a few years ago, it was fascinating to watch. So we ran a four-year leadership development program, new intake every year, 60 or 70 people. It's when I used to work with a a consultancy called DPA. And the first year, it was completely under the radar, really. had 60 people running experiments. At the end of the year, there's a kind of a Shark Tank, Dragon's Den thing, and they had to pitch it back to their local CEOs around the world. Uh, Unfortunately, I wasn't at the event in the U.S. where the CEO of the whole of Sony Music Stumbled up onto the stage, snatched the mic and said, oh my goodness, this is the stuff I've been waiting for my whole career. This is just unbelievable what you guys are doing, you know. And and you think that, you know, that guy was in his 70s. He was so energized just because he witnessed the power of running experiments. Great ideas taken a little way forward and no one's actually spent any money. And they had Britney Spears launching a signal only available on Uber. You could only listen to it in uber they're just crying out trying crazy stuff some of it really never worked or never yeah. went anywhere but it was a caliber of ideas that they would never have otherwise tried so i i often think about this as stealth work start start in small team and i what i often see happening is people looking over the dividers and what are you working on over there? What's that? Well, it's just just an experiment working on. Oh, could could you? How did, how did you do that? Well, it's just these tools, and it kind of spreads organically, but it also uh, attracts leadership attention to say, "Hang on a minute, we could be doing this much more broadly at scale. Let's train up everybody to be able to do this." You know, because you know, what does it cost to train people in how to run experiments? And I, I've also found is it starts to bleed away from working on um, ideas that are uncertain and you know we're trying to flush out assumptions. The idea of minimum viable X, which is what I talk about in the book, shows up everywhere. So hang on a minute, what's the minimum viable meeting? I hate meetings. How can we destroy meetings or how can we find the better way of uh, of making that kind of decision that doesn't necessarily need a three-hour meeting. So minimum viable process, minimal viable meeting, minimal viable emails. Suddenly everyone started to use minimum viable as a way of rethinking the bloat that suddenly cropped up in our organizations and a way to make us more effective and and efficient in what we do. So uh, hands down, I always say start with experiments because it, it just makes so much sense. Awesome
2: awesome, uh, I love the idea of minimal viable anything um, yeah. I, I, and I think to your point there, you know whether it, either whether it comes in under the radar as kind of a stealth um, and you kind of you know you, you um, don't ask for permission you ask for forgiveness and you've mm-hmm. forgiveness and you've got some some data um, the other way around is once it once it does get into what you mentioned there where someone's saying don't show me ideas show me um, you know experiments or outputs from that um, there becomes a kind of implicit permission to go and and try things, um, you know, it, it, but in a way that's going to give you some kind of responsible data that comes back. So, yeah. you can you can learn from, um, which is which is amazing. Uh, what you also mentioned, um, the performance space versus the um, rehearsal space. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, this wasn't my idea at all. I, I was interviewing someone for the book and she's a, a voice coach on X Factor. So she's the person who, you know, you have these great big choirs that suddenly appear, you know, after the second chorus and there's a choir and the curtains come back and they're swaying. Well, she she runs those. And I was just talking to her about the book and saying, how does innovation show up for you? And, and she just made this great differentiation, uh, which was there is the performance space you're on stage you have to hit every note you need to know every word you need to sway at the right time so it looks awesome you cannot fail there's no space for failure however you don't learn or grow or improve or innovate in that space because there's no scope it's the stakes are too high you don't start trying out new stuff live on x factor it's crazy similarly in business you don't want to do that you know and and often we we complain about the fact there's not much innovation going on in the business. But actually, sometimes that's the right thing in the status quo, because what you don't want to do is interrupt the thing that's actually keeping the wheels moving today and making all of the money. You want to do it in a space for a while where you're learning the stuff, you're making it fluid enough to then ultimately fit back into the, the core business. So there's there's the performance space, but then there's the rehearsal space, which is we're trying out new stuff. Doesn't matter if we hit a, done, a bum note. We're going to figure out a different kind of sway. Um, and that's where new stuff sparks. But it's safe. Everybody knows that if this goes wrong, it doesn't matter. We're just here to play, to learn. And it's in that playful state, that safe, playful state where people feel like they can take risks. And, you know, there's there's the now famous um research that, that Google did a few years back, Project Archimedes, I think it was. No, Aristotle, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, psychological safety is the number one lever of influence that causes people to show up and do their best work. So I really like that differentiation of performance space and rehearsal space. And I think the encouragement in the book is to say, what would rehearsal space look like inside your organization? And it doesn't necessarily need to be a physical space. It can, it's more of a mindset. So we're gonna have a meeting about this kind of thing and the rules in this meeting are different to how we're going to think about the rules in the day-to-day which could be the starting point the rules around this experiment we're going to run are not it has to work it's we have to learn so what how we how are we going to work with one another to build the trust so i mean for me I look at, I mean, I haven't worked inside Spotify, but I read a lot about them. And the case studies that I've seen is at the beginning of each project, a project team starts up, it's cross-functional so they can make decisions fast and, and you've got the expertise built into the team. But what they also do is have a conversation about culture. If we need to reach this outcome in this time frame, what will need to be true about how we show up for one another? How will we make decisions? How can we build trust for one another? And then how can we hold one another to positive account through the journey so that we can all do our best work? What a healthy conversation that is. So that's what I'm really talking about here. It's, you know, there's a performance space, cultural dynamic, but then there's also rehearsal space. And it's just being very clear about if we want this kind of work, let's co-design and collaborate around what would need to be true in terms of process, resources, culture, behaviors, trust so that we can do our best work.
2: It's really interesting. Uh, and it's making me think there's there's a bit of, um, I see sometimes some divided opinion in the kind of literature. I know um, uh, Alex Osterwalder, et cetera, um, talk about, they actually gone all in and say there should be a kind of CEO. And uh, I think it's a chief um, entrepreneur or something like this. Um, you know, there's a fair bit of theory about kind of dual core processes um, you know the, uh, the executional part versus the you know new disruptive thing that will put the uh, existing business out of business someday. Um, you know which which is which is one way. The other is a kind of you know a blended approach where people um, can cultivate working on new ideas at the same time as working you know on the existing business. Um, but that can be a tension for people. So you know, one minute you're doing executional reports on margin and performance, and the next you're trying to you know blow something up and learn something. Like, um, how, how do you? What do you think is the best way for for that um, for that kind of different modes of thinking to be to be managed?
0: I'm not sure there is. A perfect answer. I, I really believe that it depends a lot on the organization itself. You know, what's in your DNA? How do you work? How do you go to market? How do you currently measure value and, and all sorts of different things? And and in, in the book, there's um, a model that, that shows, you know, four different approaches that you could take, you know, from the extremes of it's all done in a lab off site somewhere through to actually it's very organic. It, it, things come up as they come up and it's everybody's job. And, you know, there are examples of organizations in each of the quadrants where they're doing it well. So it's not to say there is necessarily one better model that's better than the other. I guess the thing I'm more concerned about is how deliberate are we being about any one of those approaches and how are we building an organization where performance in one of those quadrants can be optimized. And what I see happen in many organizations is we're kind of just making it up as we go along. We're hoping ideas will show up. And there might be some people who are dedicated to new idea development in product or in marketing, but actually in the rest of the organization, it's very informal. Um, it's often a needs basis. There's been a crisis and, and we're now responding, you know, you, you look at what's going on in COVID right now, no one necessarily could have predicted it to the level that it's played out. But I I, I hear lots of organizations saying, we haven't got anything in the cupboard ready for this. You know, we, and and some of that is we're, we're just not deliberate enough about pursuing high-performing innovation. We're too busy trying to do today within an, inch of it, within an inch of its life, trying to shave all of the margins off so that we can do it for maximum stakeholder return often. And, you know, we've only got ourselves to blame when the future shows up in a way, you know, like the, the Star Wars hyper, hyperspace jump suddenly, The empire is right in front of us. Where did they come from? They jumped from hyperspace. Well, actually, you probably could have figured that one out if you'd thought more from the future about, you know, what was showing up. So I think that I think one of the biggest shifts that that an organization can make is to convince its executive team that it needs to do less operational stuff, spend more time thinking about the future and strategy and what would need to be true for more innovation to show up that moves so many levers inside the organization or at least it has the potential to do that so that you know we we're we're able to do the things that the future needs us to do to you know what decisions does the future need us to make now often we comfort ourselves with doing what's in our comfort zone the things that we're good at and, and we we celebrate being busy but at what cost and I think I, I really value seeing leaders. I mean, I'm, this organization I'm working with at the moment, I'm so impressed with the CEO. He, he, you know, Mondays, no digital work at all. He's pen and paper. He's thinking about the future. He, he's, he's got several days, it feels like <laughs> when I speak to him several days a week where he's not in a rush to do anything today. That's going to compromise the future. And he's, thinking deeply he's challenging his team that's what strategists should be doing that's what leaders should be doing so that we've got capacity to develop the stuff that the future needs
2: it's amazing really really insightful yeah i've I've read what is it jeff bezos apparently spends like three four days a week just just doing that i think it was in the book um but you know that's um Probably not that normal, but you know you see the most innovative companies actually enabling that kind of culture through the business so so for people that are on the journey um, and not quite there yet, um, you talk a bit about the kind of you know sort of whiplash almost of of being an innovator or a change maker um, you mentioned this idea of a feed smack, um, which I thought was a, a great word um, what do you think are the you know, to kind of keep going and pushing, um uh, you know, what's the kind of nutrition that like an innovator in a, in a business um, needs to keep them, keep them going, and
0: keep their head up. It, nutrition. I love that idea. I hadn't thought about that before. <laughs> well, I, I think it does depend on your environment. It depends on what you're trying to do. If you're, if you're trying to do anything that is beyond uh, too, too far beyond what we're doing today, I, I would say two or three things. So first, Keep, keep the stakes low for as long as you can. The longer you can keep the feeling of risk low, it's gonna be easier to make progress faster because it's easier for people to make decisions. And I think linked to that, one of the things that I've learned, and um, I actually I heard this from a, a guy who runs um, innovation at HSBC and then found it to be true. He said, don't ever go into progress meetings with stakeholders with tons of PowerPoint, just take your progress, show them what you've done, show them what you've made because no one really cares about the slides. It's show me the stuff. And what does this mean? So k- keeping the, the journey moving with real stuff rather than fat PowerPoint decks. And it is always a balance. You, you've got to play the game to some extent. I think for me though, the, the key thing is I would, and I'm generalizing here in most organizational contexts, this is hard yards. You don't have a clear infrastructure to work. You don't necessarily have permission to play in the areas that you want to. And you're finding yourself banging your head against the wall a lot with people making decisions that make no sense or it feels like they're making no sense. Sometimes that's you don't see the big picture, but often maybe you do. I think the, a key to staying encouraged is, is two things. One is keep reminding yourself why this matters it's very easy to to lose sight and lose heart halfway through but secondly and i think probably even more importantly is choose your friends find some people who get what you're trying to do and you can check in with and they can say it's all right it's okay i understand but actually it sounds a bit silly and a bit naff maybe but you need a lot of encouragement when you're being told no a lot or when you're failing a lot you know and you know you're onto something we just haven't found out what that thing is yet you know if you're in one of these labs where you're trading in 99% failure that's not well we talked about that earlier you're learning remember Hmm. but deep down you've got a great idea and you really want this thing to work and then it doesn't on repeat that can be quite a disheartening place to be so I talk in the book about you know people say don't fall in love with your ideas I kind of flip it and say, "Well, I think you should fall in love with your ideas. When you think about what love really is, it's love knows when to say no and and when to let go. You're being sort of a responsible citizen at the same time as being, you know, you got some sort of emotional attachment to it. And I, I think we have to be real around the emotion of this because you wouldn't be trying to do the thing you're trying to do as an innovator if you didn't care. So when people say no to something that you care about or something that you've worked your backside off in evenings that people can't see." you need some encouragement so I, I would wholeheartedly say and you might not get that from inside your organization so find friends who understand the journey you're trying to go on who can help you pick yourself back up and and go again definitely
2: it's a good idea finding finding those sources could be you know completely elsewhere as well as as well as within your um, your team and your organization yeah. final thought uh, from me um which you made me think of when you were talking there about how the journey of progress, if we're trying to be more scientific, you know, with, with methods like Lean Startup, behavioural science um, comes into the fore and within organisations, what do scientists do, you know, um, like a cancer researcher that might spend 25 years for very little ostensible progress, um, you know, but there is, there is still some, um, I wonder if there are um attitudes uh within the kind of academic world. And I guess what I was thinking about was how do you um see the relationship between corporates and academia um going in the next in the next you know kind of five, ten, twenty years? Because I guess um to me the relationship between you know venture, um startups, academia, corporates. Mm. It is changing a bit, and that's probably going to increase as we get more kind of industrialized, uh, very academic, you know, like right in the weeds of synthetic biology, for example, or genomics, and you know, as the next. You know, um, I think it's Andreessen and Horovitz talking about biology eating the world next. Just, I uh, wondered if you had any thoughts on that, on on the kind of on the, on the kind of ecosystem in the next few years.
0: Just to pick up on your first point about the difference between researchers and, and innovators, I, I think if you're on a 25 year journey, usually from the few people who I know work in this field, is every now and again you need to write a paper that's showing what you've learned, and it and actually in some respects it doesn't matter whether you were right or wrong. It's Here's what the research told us. And I guess there's some level of satisfaction and encouragement you can gain from having your paper published, which is all part of the career path. So I guess there's that. I mean, wouldn't it be great inside organizations if there was value in you publishing your findings and people were, you know, pouring all over that and peer reviewing it and saying, oh, yeah, we could do this with it. Anyway, that's just a little little aside. I love it. I'll be honest. I don't know I don't know where it's going to go next but I can tell you what the the sorts of things I'm seeing so I work in universities a fair bit mostly inside business schools so not not research but what I'm seeing even in the business schools is more and more desire to blend the learning with practice and I'm seeing organizations seeing the appeal of working with business school students perhaps to do some research or some thinking for them but being really honest it's it's not game-changing stuff. It's stuff, it's often, it's stuff that we haven't got time to do ourselves and we're buying capacity of a certain intellectual capability that can help us move the needle on on something. I'm fascinated just really to see what happens in academia next and what knock-on effect that will have because the business model for education is so under threat right now. I mean, even in the local universities to me, there's such a heavy reliance on China and Southeast Asian students coming over and basically funding all of the building that's happened, uh, you know, for thousands of more students in the last few years, and suddenly they're not there. And I would be intrigued to see what's happening in the minds of Chinese organizations and parents and students who were thinking maybe of coming to Europe, but now they're not. What does that do to the funding model? It's a huge black hole in the finances of universities. And so where's the money going to come from? The conversations that I hear about behind the scenes in universities are, we need to seriously push reset on everything. How does learning show up? What's the progress that a student is trying to make? How can we help them make that progress in different ways that still allows us to earn the money that we need to do and provide a public service. There's lots of different, you know, um, units of, of of analysis to look at on this. But that that's why I kind of hesitate to say I'm not sure what comes next, because I think education needs to understand what it looks like. And you know, and I, you know, I look at I look at an MBA for example, and you know, there's, there's a, the prize of of a, obtaining an MBA, and I look at what's in them, and I teach this stuff, and I think. What stops Google from having the Google MBA? And then when you leave your, you're, you know, you get through your MBA and you go to an employer. Well, I got mine from Sussex University. I got mine from Google University. In theory, Google shouldn't carry any weight because they're not a proper university. I'm not so sure. I reckon there are going to be lots of different organizations coming up offering types of qualification that stand shoulder to shoulder with the more established ones so even that model is interesting and therefore where's the research happening and who owns the research and so I would say at the moment it's just uh there's a whirlwind in the middle of it all I'm not sure what what when when the whirlwinds pass I'm not quite sure how it looks but I'm fascinated to see where it goes that's so yeah amazing to
2: hear um your insights on that and thoughts on it and and yeah it's it's uh, certainly
1: exciting. Mm, definitely. Awesome. Elvin, as we close, is there something that we should talk about that we haven't today? Is there something that you, I should have asked or, or something that's spurring your curiosity at the moment that, that we should cover?
0: I suppose, the, I mean, the only thing that we, we haven't, and I'm amazed we haven't talked about it, is COVID. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hooray! We didn't talk about COVID. Well, oh, sorry, I'm going to talk about COVID. Um, well, Covid for me is is so interesting, not in the in lots of different ways. But I think it's helping organizations understand this idea that we didn't have anything in the cupboard and 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 let's not be unfair. Well, who could have predicted in, in many ways what was going to happen? And, and you know, da, 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 da. Um, but I think what it's helping organizations realize is that we can't go on hoping our way into the future we need to be more deliberate about it. And people often say to me, oh, you know, COVID crisis, how should people be innovating? Well, I think people are innovating out of necessity anyway. You know, you see retail and hospitality going online at lightning speed. That's brilliant to see in many respects and lots of organisations finally being pushed into digital in a way that they hadn't before. So it's not that innovation isn't happening, but it's happening in crisis mode rather than us thinking about what are the different ways that we could show up in the future so i the, the i guess the the call that i'm putting out there is yeah you, you, you do need to keep the lights on it's hard right now innovate you've proven that you can innovate at speed and at scale now hold that energy and apply it to some more strategic thinking around innovation and build yourself an innovation ecosystem, an innovation infrastructure that allows you to outlearn, to outperform, to outearn, to outmaneuver the competition rather than. Allowing yourself to come back to, oh, it's all gonna settle down soon. We're gonna have the vaccine, life will return back to normal, and we're back to planning again. We could we can predict cause and effect very you know easily. Well, guess what? That's not gonna happen. Don't allow yourself to fall into that full sense of security. Sure, some things will probably come back to some level of what was before. But use this as as an opportunity to spur on innovation inside your organisation, be more deliberate, be more strategic, get help in to help you um, build out the capabilities that you need so that you can show up in a much better, more effective, more profitable way for all of your stakeholders.
1: Yes. Yeah. Incredible. Thank you, Elvin, for spending time with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Where can people find you?
0: uh well i guess be less zombies on all of the bookshops so please check that out if you if you think that would be useful for you or a, a colleague elvin turner.com is my website BeLessZombie.com also has its own website but um yeah stick my name in google i'll, I'll show up somewhere
1: <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much and uh yeah appreciate the conversation we've had today
0: yeah thank you it's been lots of fun thank you for having me on
1: thanks so much alan That was the interview with Elvin Turner. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did recording it. And if you want to find out about past episodes and further links, please go to huk.com forward slash podcast and we'll see you next time.